The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 160 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Well, folks, last week, George had the CTO, the chief technology officer for Inquest, Padrama Mini, on the show to break down why email security is still a huge risk for most businesses, what types of email attacks are prevalent in the market today, and how corporations can defend themselves against these resilient attacks. Amini also unpacks the email technologies provided by Microsoft and Google, which one of them have more effective email security and the projects and technologies he's developed to fight the good fight against one of the biggest attack vectors used by cyber organized criminals today. All this and much, much more on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Don't sweat it if you missed it, folks. You can find us everywhere on Playback. That's why are we still talking about email security on last week's episode. That's episode number 159 of Task Force 7 Radio. So I'm super pumped for tonight. We got another great guest, return guest, a friend of mine. We go back a long way. We got the Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence at Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gundert. Levi is the Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence and Risk at Recorded Future, where he leads a continuous effort effort to measurably decrease operational risk for customers. Levi spent the past 20 years in both government and the private sector defending networks, arresting international criminals, and uncovering nation-state adversaries as the VP of Cyber Threat Intelligence at Fidelity Investments, and as a special agent of the United States Secret Service, Los Angeles Electronic Crimes Task Force, before joining Recorded Future. He's held senior information security leadership positions across technology and financial services enterprises, and he is also a trusted risk advisor to Fortune 100 companies and a prolific speaker, blogger, columnist, and recent author of The Risk Business, What CISOs Need to Know About Risk-Based Cybersecurity. It's my pleasure to bring back Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence of Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. Levi, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, brother. Thanks so much, Andy. Always a pleasure to be here. Man, we go way back, like way back, fighting the mean digital streets of LA and around the world together. And man, it's so good to catch up with you. I got to admit, though, I'm a little bummed. I did a little, you know, search for my name in the book and I didn't see it, but we'll hold that for for another day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were there were a lot of people, man. There are a lot of people to thank in that book, but believe me, it was uh, it, it was it was not an, an exhaustive list by any means. <laughs> I'm messing with you, but look, man, I'm super pumped about the book. Um, I, I'm glad that you finally put something out. It's long overdue. Um, you've got such a great perspective, and uh, I'm glad you're here to share share with it. But I got to ask, like. I know, I know you probably wrote most of the book while you're in the air, traveling around the world, speaking and uh, repping Recorded Future, but uh, how did it come about in the first place? Well, you mentioned it earlier, Andy. You know, you and I, obviously, we met, I think, 15 years ago now, something crazy back at Secret Service. And, you know, back then, you and I were really sort of at the very, the very front of intelligence. 
and, and the power and the value of intelligence and, you know, what that brought to criminal investigations. Um, and obviously, you know, you yourself have been a part of, you know, a ton of really important investigations for the Secret Service. And, you know, intelligence made so much of that happen. And I, I think, you know, in LA, you know, we, we were trying to really figure out how to do it properly in the early days. And it all made sense. You know, when, when we, were in, we were in the public sector, it kind of all made sense. And then I jumped to the private sector. And when I was in the private sector, it, it didn't take long before I started to realize that the value proposition for intelligence was a little bit different. And, you know, what businesses cared about and what their responsibility was, you know, was very different than the public sector. And, and the mission of companies and businesses, obviously, at the end of the day is to be profitable. So the, the role that intelligence plays is very different. And as I sort of started to dig into this, I realized that there was a bigger problem around risk in that so many organizations um, that, that I've personally been a part of have had trouble understanding risk from cyber threats. They, they've had an, a trouble understanding how to articulate it, how to measure it, how to communicate it. And because of that, there's a lot of different things, unfortunately, negative, negative outcomes that sort of cascade from, from that problem. So I've literally been thinking about this problem for the last you know, five, six years, uh, really ever since I joined Recorded Future. And it's just sort of been a, a journey and an evolution, you know, reading uh, different things that are out there and, and really talking to a lot of uh, CISOs like yourself uh, in various industry verticals to really try and come up with a better model for how companies should be thinking about risk, you know, specifically in the cyber domain. So, man, we've had this topic a few times, you know, on the show, and we, we've talked about it in the context of like financial analytics. And, then, and, and there's been a huge push in the industry, especially at like the board of director level and those associations where they're, you know, the boards are now saying, look, I, I need a better way to translate and understand and communicate you know, so they can absorb cyber in business context. So, so did you crack the code? Like, I mean, have you, you think, you know, dive over into the framework. I mean, so, you know, you, you are a great person to talk to about this because obviously, you know, you and I have been talking about this for years and there's different approaches to this and there's merits in, in each approach and every situation is different. Meaning, you know, the, the board of directors, there's different levels of IQ, there's different levels of expectations. But I think at the heart of this, it is a valuable exercise to quantify risk, even if you're not going to take the, the, the details and the nuance into the board, even for yourself, just running a security program, you know, to understand better uh, where the risk actually lies, I think becomes a very, powerful, a very powerful story to tell at the board level. And obviously, you need to sort of caveat some of this and you need to up-level some of it before you have those conversations, because obviously the board doesn't want to get into formulas and variables and assumptions and models and so forth. Right? They, just, they just want the bottom line, which is, are we going to lose money? And if so, how much? Right? And, and there's all sorts of things that sort of revolve around that. You know, there's, there's penalties from regulatory and compliance. Right? If, if you have a breach, potentially, there is you know, brand harm and reputation. There is the, the cost you know, when it comes to the theft of intellectual property. Uh, there, there's just so, there's so many costs, but at the end of the day, what they want to understand is, is the cost 
of mitigating or managing the risk greater than the cost of, you know, actually succumbing to the risk. And that's really what they, they want to know. And, and you know this as well. And so it really becomes an exercise in how do we develop a formula? How do we develop a process to measure risk in a way that we can all trust, we can all get on board with? Because as you know, you know, GRC groups, the governance, the risk compliance groups, they have ways that they like to measure risk that generally revolve around something like likelihood of occurrence times impact. And, and they do this for all different things, right? They do it for economic risk. They do it for geopolitical risk. They do it for, you know, all kinds of things. But when it comes to cyber, there's something missing today in the way that companies do uh, compliance and governance broadly. And, and a big part of that is really um, finding a better way to translate all of these cyber threats, you know, how do they represent a risk if they do represent a risk? Because as you know, most security organizations are already pouring so much money and so much financial resources into security. So not every threat is a risk, right, at a given point in time. So it's really, it's really figuring out, you know, how do we determine what are the risks? And more importantly, moving away from at the board level, I think it's fine if you want to go in there and you want to say, look, you know, here's, here's the heat map breakdown, right? Here's the, the red, yellow, green. Here's the high, medium, low, you know, because it's, it's easy to communicate. It's easy to tell that story. But for your, for your, your own team and, and for your own function, being able to go a step further and say, okay, well, you know, high or, you know, medium or amber, it's a little bit nebulous. Like, what does that mean? You know, you, Andy, as a CISO, do you lose more sleep at night, right? When something is amber, like, what does that mean? <laughs> what do I do right? about that, right? What, what do you do about that? Yeah, exactly. And so it's a much, in my opinion, it is much easier to make confident decisions, you know, and, and as you know, businesses are in the middle of digital transformation with COVID, every, you know, they're literally taking five-year strategies and they're doing these things in five months or five weeks, and there's obviously risk that comes along with that. And so the business obviously wants to accelerate and enable the core business with technology, but they also want to be able to address these risks as they're happening. And so it, it goes from, hey, we've got a high risk over here, or we've got you know, a yellow risk over here to this is the risk. You know, this is the threat. This is why it represents a risk to us. And this is what we think it will cost us this year. Right in very in very in very specific numbers, right loss numbers, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong there's nothing inherently wrong with likelihood of occurrence times impact, except that what I have seen in my experience is that people typically don't put a lot of rigor into those two variables, and so it's kind of a garbage in garbage out scenario, and and that has really unfortunately kind of come to represent the state of of our industry. I think unfortunately. And so I, I'm in the book, I'm just advocating for a little bit deeper level of scrutiny and how we calculate risk, how we communicate it, and really trying to find a framework that is practical, right? Because there's frameworks out there that, you know, they're, they're all about risk quantification, but they're not practical. Um, people get bogged down in the, in the details and the minutia, and it's ultimately counterproductive to what they're trying to do. So I, I really, I, I have a, a new risk framework that I call... Uh, category risk or uh, threat category risk, TCR. And it's really just designed to be super practical. It's based on a lot of the same principles as FAIR, uh, but it's, it's really designed to look at 
risk from a threat category perspective, and it can be as granular as you want. It can be as general as you want. And the point is to be practical, to be able to to do something better in a short amount of time. So practical is such a great key point here, right? I mean, because you can boil the ocean with this. Um, You can build out completely new like ERM, you know, programs, right, in this space. But the practicality, it becomes so important being able to actually implement it and get something out of it. Um, In your conversations with folks, are you hearing any like resistance to like having to make sure that the model's defendable? Like are, are people looking to start to pick apart the modeling um, as your people are, you know, kind of checking out the book and hitting you up? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that's one of the most important questions is, you know, if you're going to use a model, making sure that you understand it and that you, you can defend it. And I think one of the benefits of you know, this model is really based on principles in uh, Hubbard and Searson's book, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk. And I really think it's sort of a seminal read in our industry. And so this, this model is sort of adapting cyber threats to the principles they lay out in the book. And, you know, a lot of this is that there is uncertainty and you have to be able to account for that uncertainty in your model. And, you know, you and I have talked about this at length, there's better data today than there was, you know, five, six years ago. And, and things have, have moved very quickly in terms of so many breaches, so many security events. Um, but there's a lot of data now in terms of what those events are costing companies, you know, over a two or three year period. So you have much better data to, to begin uh, inputting into a model. And, and then, you know, you also have different strategies. So the one, I, the one I talk about in the book, you know, are, are these Monte Carlo simulations, which is finding a range instead of trying to come up with an actual number, um, accounting for the unknown. So starting with a lower bound and an upper bound estimate, and then, you know, basically letting the simulations take care of a lot of this. And I think, you know, the, the insurance industry may not be using this. And this is something you and I have also talked about is that you know, the, the insurance industry is getting much better at underwriting cybersecurity policies and, and insurance policies, and they have a lot better data to do this. So obviously, you know, piggybacking on their data is great. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's still uncertainty, right? And that's really sort of why I, I advocate for the model that I do. No, no matter how much you do, like the exposure, right, never really goes away. Like you might mitigate your risk but the actual exposure is still there, right? It doesn't, doesn't always alleviate. So I think that's, that's a really cool point. Um, you know, and I think we're definitely hitting a, a point around, you know, there's enough data to start to get very comfortable. The question will be, is there enough data for people outside of our space to be comfortable? Um, and, that, and that's where I'm really interested to see where this goes. Um, but man, I, I, I got so many questions for you, bro. We got to take a quick break though. And we'll, we'll dive into it here in the next segment. But all right, folks, we're going to transition this commercial break. So, if, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram at searching at TF7 Radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and we're right back with Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence 
of Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence of Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. All right, Levi, last segment you touched on TCR, Threat Category Risk. What is it, and can you explain it? It's a good question. It's going to be challenging, man. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. No, it, it is pretty straightforward. Like, if I can't, then I've, I've already failed. So, That's right. yeah. So, Threat Category Risk, again, is just based on, you know, the principle of quantifying risk. And there's some other frameworks out there, like FAIR, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. And the issue, the issue that I have with that is it's very adversary-centric, meaning 
there's a lot of thought and time put into trying to understand all of the minutia around a particular threat actor or threat actor group in terms of, you know, how they operate, what the tools are, what the tactics are, you know, so forth and so on. And we, we already know that there are plenty of bad threat actors and adversaries out there. So I'm really advocating more for, again, a threat category centric approach. And again, these can be as basic or, you know, as granular, as high level as you want them to be. So in the book, for example, you know, the risk types, the risk categories, I have social engineering, right? Maybe you look at that and you say, well, I actually want to split that out. You know, I want phishing to be its own category. I want someone dropping thumb drives in a parking lot to be its own category. You know, I, maybe you want to be more detailed and that's fine. But I just start with some basic examples here. So social engineering, uh, credential reuse, web application vulnerabilities, denial of service, internet protocol hijacking, hardware vulnerabilities, software vulnerabilities, and physical tampering. So, you know, we're really talking about eight categories. And again, you can be more specific if you want. Simple, high-level, easy to understand. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, this whole thing has got to be practical. You know, nobody has time to be, you know, and, and I'll tell you honestly, Andy, you know, I've talked to quite a few different CISOs and I'm very fortunate. I get to go to events. I get to present on this topic. I get to interact with CISOs and it, it really is, you know, I feel blessed that I, I just get to learn from so many people like yourself that are in the trenches, right. And that are, that are responsible for the security of, of various organizations. And everyone I've talked to has had a really difficult time. Um, implementing FAIR in, in a very, you know, practical way. You know, I've talked to people who have been spending a year, two years, or even longer uh, trying to implement it, and they just don't have much to show for it. So again, this is this is really designed to be. Let's do something quickly, right? Let let's get let's get the model done. Let's get the simulations run in a day, right? Two days at most. And the great thing about this is it's a spreadsheet, right? To input your values, uh, to input your ranges. And just a little bit of little bit of Python, a little bit of code, whatever you want it to be, it's it's not much, just to run your simulations, and and that's what you end up with. So you're going to enter values and ranges. So first, you kind of have to start with, you know, how do I come up with a range? Well, you know, you think about you think about a, a term like annualized loss expectancy. That is to say, how much money do we think we're going to lose this year based on the category, right? So let's take denial of service. As an organization, will we get hit by denial of service this year? There's probably not a 0% probability, and there's probably not a 100% probability, right? It falls uh, somewhere in the middle. So, you know, you start with impact confidentiality of information, availability information, or both. And then you literally come up with the ranges for what's it going to cost you if you get hit by a denial of service attack. So on the low end, you say, well, you know, we probably get hit by denial of service attacks once a week. And we don't really even feel them because we outsource, you know, some of our security control on that to a third-party company, and they they basically handle that right upstream for us. You know, we use uh, an an Akamai or, or what have you to to handle that. So it doesn't really cost us anything, right? So on the one hand, uh, denial of service attack could be uh, zero dollars this year. Um, on the top end, right, if if it's a new type of denial of service attack, uh, it uses a technique that no one's ever really seen before, and it, it really can be overwhelming, then it's possible that 
Uh, maybe our site goes down. And if we're an e-commerce site, how much does that cost us on an hourly basis? You know, um, that's not too hard to figure out. So it's really just inputting the values in the spreadsheet and then running the simulations. And you can run a single simulation in Excel. Uh, and then, like I said, it's just a little bit of code to run those simulations 100,000 times or half a million times. And, you know, again, the results that come out of this are good guide points, right? It's not to say that everything in the model is perfect because there are no perfect models. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're an insurance underwriter it doesn't matter how much data you have. There are no perfect models, right? And that's really important to say up front. This is, again, really designed to be a practical tool so that you can be more informed about what you think losses are in a given year against these threat categories. Yeah, really drive that conversation, investment strategies, maybe risk transfer even. Um, yeah, so in the, in the book, you talk about, you know, the, the role of security controls and control validation. Um, I'd love to get your take on just kind of where do you see that space going? Um, you know, as a practitioner, right? It's, it's sometimes it can be, you know, you get, you want to get past that quarterly, you know, pen test for folks, right? And especially small, medium sized companies that don't have the same resources that can, that can implement this kind of modeling. You know, what would be the advice that you'd give them around? ways to validate controls, you know, consistently? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know this, you know, I, I would love to turn the question around for you because I guess, you know, it's how comfortable are you that, you know, that quarterly or annual pen test is really sufficient uh, to flush out where you may have gaps in your security controls? Because of course, you know, the better you understand that, the better that you can uh, push values into your, your risk model. And, and really better understand the numbers. And I think there are products out there and, and it's a nascent market, but there's definitely products out there doing uh, iterative control validation, right? Where you build scenarios and you run scenarios uh, within your own environment in, in a virtual sense. And you can score your controls, right? You can score your host-based controls, your network-based controls, even you know maybe your process controls. And I think that's really where the best bang for the buck is in, in intelligence because so many companies today, you know, if they have an intelligence team, you know, when you talk to them, their primary deliverable, you know, tends to be threat reports. And if you kind of follow that, you ask, well, you know, who reads the threat reports? Well, you know, we send them up the chain and they get distributed and people read them. And you know, it's like, well, do you get any feedback? Well, I mean, sometimes, but, you know, are people making decisions based on these reports? Like hard to know. Right, so you've got this entire group of people with a daily workflow putting out these reports, but how do how do they measure the efficacy and the value of these things? What does it and mean it, to us? Yeah, it's so difficult, right? So if if you're getting daily threat report, like what are you doing with that? How do you me- how do you measure and communicate the value of that? Yeah, I, I love that conversation, right? Because it's that's it really speaks to the evolution of you know intelligence and and kind of getting away from, like, we love to say we want to be as close to the threat as possible, right? Like, we want to know everything about that threat actor as we possibly can. But we also have to turn it around and say, we need to be as close to our controls as possible to understand if the threat and the control actually, you know, would be bypassed by that threat. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what, that's what intelligence should be doing for businesses. You know, it should 
be acting as the canary in the coal mine, right? To, to basically set up these scenarios that you're iteratively playing out, you know, to understand when you have a gap at a point in time, because that is the speed that threats and threat actors move at. So the quarterly and the annual pen tests don't work anymore. They're, they're not frequent enough. So, so um, where, if, where do you think yeah. the, so, so like for me, like, and I think you and I have chatted about this, like my, my nirvana, you know, is, is a CISOB, man, I want to have an app that gives me my, you know, estimated financial exposure in real time based on all my tool, you know, my tools, how we're being attacked at that moment and the effectiveness mm-hmm. of my control. So like, if I zoom that out a little bit, it would be, or zoom it in a little bit, it would be threat likelihood, um, you know, plus control effectiveness, plus business impact gives me mm-hmm. my thing, right? And, but the, the threat likelihood piece, I think, is very, you know, easily doable. The control effectiveness piece really requires a lot more integration and development. But I, I'd love to get your take on, you know, the, the, the cyber attack simulation space, like there are some tools out there that that do this. So you get some really good reporting, you know, kind of getting it all configured and everything is another story. But I think we're moving in that direction. We're, how, how far down the road do you think that space is like from being really mature? I think we're a couple of years out. You know, I think in the same way that risk quantification is slowly gaining some traction. I think, you know, control validation is is slowly gaining traction and adoption in the same way. Because I think there is that realization that threats move really quickly. And if there's, a new, if there's a new ransomware family that starts selling in the underground economy, in criminal forums, you know, today, how, how long is it going to take you, right, to understand whether your endpoint security controls are effective against it? How long is it going to take you to understand how it spreads? Is, it, is initial unauthorized access happening via phishing? Is it happening via exposed remote desktop protocol instances? Is it happening through web application vulnerabilities? You know, all of those questions, they take time to answer. And so I think that's where, to your point, uh, technology has a really fundamental role to play to help accelerate that cycle. So in the book, I talk about two metrics that are very similar to incident response metrics, which is mean time to surface or mean time to detect, right? And then mean time to assess, meaning how long does it take you to become aware of a new threat? And then once you're aware of the threat, how long does it take you to actually do the control validation, right? And, and it may be, it could be minutes, could be days, could be weeks, depending on the complexity of that new threat. And what we found at Recorded Future is that, you know, we have clients that are definitely on the more mature side that are on the front end of this, that are, that are doing this iteratively, right? And they're, they're using products that are out there um, or they're developing their own scenarios. Um, a friend of mine, Stefan Chinette, you know, is the founder and CEO, um, former CEO, but the founder of Attack IQ, a company headquartered and in, in originally based in San Diego. And this was their vision. And I remember uh, Stefan actually sitting down at lunch with him one day and him kind of explaining what his vision was for this product. And it kind of blew me away because it was such a gap and it still is a gap in our industry. So I think, you know, again, that's the most powerful thing intelligence can be doing is instead of creating a report for someone to maybe or may not read it and really no actions that come out of that, intelligence should be, to your point, driving everything closer to controls, which is how does this thing work? 
And what, what are our controls doing at a point in time? And we found that, you know, certain clients who record a feature, they find all the time that even though they have antivirus, even though they have uh, an EDR solution, oftentimes there is a gap between a threat that is in the wild and, you know, what that, what that security control can do in terms of protection, you know, five days out from, you know, that, that initial threat. And maybe they catch up, you know, two or three weeks, but maybe there's a couple of days where they're vulnerable. And I think that's really the, the, you know, the power of the power of iterative control validation. And to your, to your question, in my long winded way of answering this, I really think this is going to become uh, much more of an industry standard, uh, you know, over the next uh, two to three years, especially. Yeah, you got me. You got me thinking about a whole bunch of things. Um, you know, I love the correlation between kind of the, the regular IR stats. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the arms race that we're in, right? And it, typically, you hear that in the context of malware, right? Uh, new variant comes out, endpoint, ha- you know, AV software endpoint has to be reconfigured, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's in essence the same thing across every control, right? And I think that's a really, you know, fun topic to explore for folks, right? If, you, if they haven't been thinking about control validation and control effectiveness in the same way, you know, as broadly as they used to as for AV, right? Back in the, you know, really back in the day, right? Um, you know, I think that's the right way to think about this stuff because otherwise you're you're not being holistic. Yep. I, I, do, I do wonder, and I want to get your take on, the time though, right? Like, you know, when we have a lot of, we don't have a lot of time. And sometimes these controls, you know, they require investment, they take socialization, mm-hmm. they take re-architecture, you yeah. know, depending on maturity levels, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, do you feel like having a framework like this would enable people to, you know, kind of be under, be comfortable with the amount of time things take to get implemented? Or, is it still just, hey, look, it doesn't matter if you have that kind of runway and we give you the top cover to have that runway, you still then have still on the hook that happens, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So I, I think, you know, a couple of things. So number one, you're right. Like everyone is short on resources. There's a dearth of resources everywhere and that's human, financial, et cetera. And security control validation helps you with this iterative scoring process to your point so that you can potentially build a dashboard and you can bring technology to bear on something that is a, is a big problem to solve. So I think that's number one. And then number two, I think to your point, it also helps you with a consistent story. As you go in you know, to the board and you tell the story, uh, being able to talk through your security control scoring right, at any point in time helps you sort of you know, compare apples to apples and have a consistent story to say, look, you know, we've had to go back to our vendor a couple of different times because they didn't have protection. They didn't have signatures, they didn't have definitions for, you know, threat X or Y, and we were exposed for five days or whatever it was. And I think that helps in terms of the storytelling, you know, it helps tell a consistent story about where there needs to be additional resource investment in the business. And I think without that, it's, it's really difficult, right? Because I talk about this in the book is that so many companies today are very compliance focused. And by that, I mean, they're going to align to the NIST cybersecurity framework, they're going to align to ISO 27002, whatever it may be. And everyone acknowledges they're super helpful tools, right? They're, they're great tools for baselining things to kind of understand where you are. 
When I talk to CISOs who tell me all the time, look, the overarching goal of our security program is to, is to move secu- you know, our, our maturity from a three to a four in this cybersecurity framework. It's like, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem you run into is then you start thinking in terms of checkbox, right? We, we, we implemented the firewall, check. We, you know, we outsourced to a SOC, check. Right? Yep. But there's never, there's never a lot of follow-up thought about the efficacy of those solutions and the continuous monitoring of those security controls. And so you run into this problem where people just kind of want to check the box and move on as a mentality instead of the risk-based approach that we're talking about, which is I want to know how my controls are faring every single day against the latest threats. And then I want to be able to convert that into actual risk, risk numbers, because that gives me, that gives me tools and, and power to tell a story that I just can't tell otherwise, right? Because otherwise I can only say, yeah, you know, we increase maturity, we check the boxes. And as you know, Andy, I mean, you, you have investigated, you know, a ton of major breaches. So many organizations get breached, but yet they're compliant the day before they get breached, you know, right. whether it's PCI DSS or some other framework. So it's really changing the way the entire organization thinks about security to say, yes, there's obviously things we have to do from a governance and compliance perspective, but that's just one tool in the tool bag. And our entire holistic security program, to your point, should be centered around risk and understanding what that risk is at any given point in time. And if we can't do that, we need to invest more to get to that point. Man, I love it. All right, brother, we're going to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We're right back with more from Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence of Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. 
with forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Senior Vice President of Global Intelligence of Recorded Future, my pal, Mr. Levi Gunder. All right, buddy. It's been a crazy 2020, obviously, with everything going on. Glad your family's doing well. But I do want to get your perspective on, you know, kind of lessons learned from 2020. Yeah, that's a crazy question. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I talked about it earlier with the digital transformation, and I think that's so true, just the way that companies have had to respond and adapt overnight. And I think I heard earlier you were talking about a, a recent episode around phishing, um, just basic threats that we've been dealing with for, you know, 20 plus years now, like phishing you know, continue to be problematic. And as employees went full-time remote, you know, companies trying to figure out things like, you know, are they able to print documents out? Do they have shredders to, you know, how much more VPN capacity are we going to have to add, you know, so that everyone can continue to get on the VPN and do their job and calling traffic around the world for VPNs. Yeah. I mean, then, you know, down to phishing and, how do we deal with, you know, employees that may be susceptible to phishing at home? And what are the implications of that for our assets, you know, and, and our network? And so it's been, to your point, it's just been super challenging. And I think, you know, everyone's trying to adapt and respond as, as quickly as possible. But I think some of those basic threats that we know about just continue to be so difficult to, to handle, you know, on, on a large scale. In any... Um any major shifts in the underground or just kind of steady state, you know, leveraging the things that have continued to work and take advantage of the kind of the pandemic chaos. I think one of the things we've seen, you know, within our criminal team at recorded future, you know, we've really seen a a pretty significant uptick in actors that are selling or auctioning that initial unauthorized access into a company and, you know, it used to be five years ago when, you know, an actor compromised a, a resource, right, a computer or whatever it may be, there wasn't necessarily a recognition that that resource had specific value when it sat inside of a company, right? Especially because five, six years ago, you know, botnets were, were big and, you know, the way you monetized a botnet was every computer was basically worth, you know, 10 or 15 cents in a, 
pay per install model and it didn't really matter where it was. But now, you know, we're really seeing that adversaries understand that when they're able to either opportunistically gain access to a resource or a system inside the network, or even in a targeted fashion, that there is so much more value right to that. And so we're seeing auctions of 20,000 US dollars or 50,000 US dollars, depending on who the company is and the level of access that they have. So that's been a pretty fundamental shift that we've been following for the last 18 months or so. And it's really sort of ramped up uh, during COVID. I think, you know, the other trend that's been pretty disturbing is that most of the people that are buying that access are ransomware purveyors. They are uh, people or groups that push ransomware into these networks and systems. And a lot of that initial foothold is coming from other actors in the underground economy. So we're seeing this this cycle become uh, very vibrant. And it's unfortunate because on top of that, you know, we're also seeing this model where if the ransom's not paid, they're moving to try and extort through PII theft, right? And they're even now moving to try and parse out these databases of victims within uh, these databases to try and extort the victims directly. And that could be anything from, you know, healthcare records to other types of PII. Uh, it's just a super disturbing trend. And obviously, there's been a lot of headlines around hospitals and schools getting hit. Right. Uh, we're going to just see more of that because this is such a vibrant ecosystem and the monetization potential is so high. So I'm sure in a couple of weeks, you're going to start getting hit hard for your 21 projections, but I'm going to get you just a little bit early here, just a little bit. What do you think is going to happen outside of the continuation? <laughs> you know, groundbreaking insight, futuristic insight you want to share? <laughs> Everyone loves the, the next year's uh, prognostications. <laughs> no, so I think, you know, it's, it's not difficult to see evolutions. Again, in the business model around ransomware, I think we're going to continue to see just tremendous criminal investment in that type of business. And they're going to continue to try and innovate in the way that they find and deliver ransomware. So that, that is unfortunately super troubling. And then I think, you know, the presidential election is definitely going to alter some things. I think, you know, if you, if you sort of think about nation state campaigns and nation state sponsored, you know, cyber campaigns, what effect will the Biden administration have on some of that activity? Um, you know, Trump, was uh, a hard charger, right, in terms of addressing what's been happening with China over the last 20 years. And, you know, Iran as well, right, backing out of the, the JCPOA. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, Biden and the foreign policy team, you know, really kind of what is the ethos and the mantra there, and especially dealing with the big four, you know, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. I think, you know, with the assassination that just occurred in Iran, you know, there, there is the potential for, you know, a lot more activity, right. Coming out of the, the cyberspace as a, as a tool, sort of depending on, you know, what happens in, in the administration and, and how they look at this. So I think it's difficult to know exactly, you know, what, what Biden is going to do, but I think, you know, there's, there's just a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainty around, you know, will, Will there be retaliation from companies, from countries like Iran, excuse me, 
uh, does, does it matter, you know, who's in the white house? Um, kind of, kind of difficult to say. We'll bring you back in like six months and we'll see where, where your head's at. Well, you can prove everything I said was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, I really appreciate you coming back on the show, buddy. And I'm glad uh, all is well with you and the family. Likewise, always great chatting with you, Andy. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, brother. All right, folks, time for us to bounce up on out of here. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.